Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and onto changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pollain. I'm a service design and innovation consultant, educator, coach, and writer. My guest today is leadership and executive coach Tuti Tegeli. She has over 22 years as a design leader, working at startups and large companies, most recently at Facebook. And throughout her career, she's been building products as well as culture. Tuti, welcome to Power of 10. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. So um, gave you the kind of one-liner bio there. Who are you? And tell, tell us, you know, how you got to here from where you were. Whew, long story. I'll try and bottom line it. You know, I think that just throughout my career, I've always, uh, I've always loved design and have never been quite sure that I was a real designer <laughs> because I didn't have a graphic design background. I didn't have a visual right. design background. And instead I came around to design from a psychology, a human com- computer interaction fascination. I, uh, when I was in school at Stanford, I studied all the things I was interested in. I was a computer science major for two years just because I'm fascinated by the logic and that understanding of, mm. of machines, but then realized that I was slowly getting so much more fascinated with philosophy, psychology of mind, and, and ethics. And I was able to wrap that all into a, a major they called symbolic systems with a focus on human computer interaction, which is a precursor to a lot of the design school work at yeah, Stanford sure. right now. Yeah, yeah. Really lucky to be able to see that and then do a ton of this bunch of work through my 22 year career. And I'm, I'm always a designer now, even though I may have questioned it at points through there. It's really interesting, isn't it? That idea that, um, Still, designers, I often wonder if conductors, I mean, most conductors, I orchestra conductors are musicians that they can play something too. But I, I wonder if there's a thing there of, you know, well, I'm not really a musician because I, you know, they don't, they don't really say I'm not really a musician because I just wave a stick, right? But it is that, that thing that if it's not explicitly a kind of uh, like visual design you mentioned, then you're not, you don't really feel like a kind of real designer. Well, a lot of the uh, the designers I used to work with and some of the, some of the the clients that I coach right now struggle with this dilemma, which is if I go into management, do I take away from getting my hands mm. dirty in the craft of design and am I, am I really a designer? And Anymore, you mean? Anymore, the, the, exactly. Yeah. And do I still have it? Could I still do it? Could I still jump back, jump back in? And when I talk to some of these people, I think the first question I get to is just why? What's your why? Why are you doing this for what to serve who and for what end? In terms of the leadership thing or in terms of just what they're doing in general? What in they're terms designing? of uh, why are they attracted? Why, why do they do the work they do? Mm-hmm. You know, and for some people, it's to make stuff. I need to make something, a, a, a product, an interface that is absolutely gorgeous and it's from the sheer joy of making it. Mm-hmm could be a selfish pure joy i want i want this out in the world for the others it's to to service a need for for a person using it and then i think for many many people who are less hands-on in the pixels it's really to serve and create a bigger process culture body of work 
uh, to, to enable and serve others. And that's a journey that I, I personally made from, from being a maker of products and pixels to maybe being more of a maker of processes and, and culture. Yeah. And in a way, that's been pretty a surprisingly seamless theme into doing what I do now, which is leadership coaching and getting the best right. out of people. So I do a similar a similar thing and, and uh, coach people and design leadership. And one of the things, I just wrote a piece actually, um, I finished it last night, which was about this idea of the dip, which is, you know, that thing you're describing where you're kind of giving up your, and I think a lot of designers go through this, um, where you're giving up your tools or your craft skills, that very explicit stuff that you talked about at the beginning that makes you feel like I am a designer, you know. Uh, and you move into an area that you may well not have been trained in at all, um, depending on your education, um, in in sort of comparison to, say, someone who's been in sort of management consulting or project management stuff where kind of managing people and, and process and so forth is is kind of what you've done from the very beginning. So it's just to sort of expand. Whereas for di- designers, there's often a bit of a kind of 90-degree turn there. And the dip is where you're kind of letting go of your tools, skills, uh, and still – gaining the other ones and so you're kind of bit rubbish at both and it can be a Mm -hmm. real um it can be a real psychological shock it can be a real kind of uh uh, confidence dent um what was your experience of that i think that my path to design has always been a fascination with people and machines yeah sometimes it's been more towards the machine sometimes it's been more towards the people um and i I'm a restless soul. I like a lot of different things and variety. So there's been a lot to keep me busy. Do you think it helped that you didn't kind of, um, you said before, you didn't sort of obviously identify as a designer uh, at the beginning. Do you think that's helped you made that make that kind of shift? Uh, definitely. Because I don't think I was in deep, deep, deep training, learning, competency, skill set as being like the best graphic designer or the best animator or the best motion designer. So your identity um, was, wasn't sort of hung up mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. yeah, I think I was good at a lot of things and very specifically just around um, this fascination with people. My first job, actually, I started out as a researcher for right. about six months before I realized that I loved the research, but I also needed to create and make and and then so when you've kind of were starting to make, um, what was the thing that was giving you the kind of buzz out of that? Because there's a lot of drudge work with making too, right? Necessary kind of, I say drudge work, there's there's basically, there's lots of kind of, there's hard work. I mean, I, I have a thing, for example, where I I feel I'm I'm kind of cursed with the ability to see that typography isn't working, but I absolutely don't have the patience that a good typographer has and therefore don't have the skill to to get it right. There's that, um, you know, there's patience and sort of hard graft and you need something to carry you through. It's actually what Seth Godin called, t- talks about as the dip. There's something you need. Every project has that kind of thing where, oh, like, this is just work right now. Um, what carries you through? It's interesting because I think I have a surface level answer and a deeper answer. Well, it's at both. And the surface answer, which is almost, do you find that, especially when you talk to a lot of people, give a lot of interviews, you have a practiced and a surface level answer. Mm. 
Like when people ask you in interviews, what are some of your strengths? What's your design superpower? All of this, this stuff. Mm. And the surface answer I always clung to for many years, uh, well, was a little bit like this power of 10. Like the, the satisfaction of being able to zoom out and see the big, tall meta view, you know, what is this? Why does it really matter? How does it connect to everything else? The systems design part of it. Yeah. And then also be able to zoom down to one little micro interaction and obsess about it and then back up and down again. And, you know, increasingly towards just the middle and end of my career, it was more spending time zooming up and spending time zooming down to work with designers to to help them see the the up and the down. And so that's been that's been the part that I've enjoyed the most and the, mm. the process of it, you know, and knowing that at any point in time, you're in one of these levels of zoom, but it'll be, it'll change to be able to shift and get a new perspective to get a new insight. But that's quite a, um, I mean, I found, and that's the thing actually I've always looked for in people when I've been hiring, sort of what I've been looking for when I've seen conflict going on or, or sort of misunderstanding more. Um, is it's it, there's a real art to knowing which level of zoom you're at, right? And which one you should be working at. Because often um, you might know that you're in a kind of a level of detail, but actually you need to kind of go up. Yeah. Uh, a level. And where's the mismatch? Because yeah. the rest of the team or the stakeholders are in a different level of zoom. Right. And often sort of one, uh, a conversation around sort of one level of zoom around detail is expected to somehow kind of transform the business in some way without the business tackling any of the kind of broader structural stuff, right? Absolutely. And which is a common thing of like, we need to improve our CX and can we kind of make some moments that matter and wow moments and, and sort of fiddle with that stuff um, without actually dealing with the, with the broader zoom and the expectation that the CX team should somehow make that happen, right? Yeah, and also on the other hand that as a designer, there's one thing that only you can do and can be really, really good at at the detailed level. Mm. And simply getting just the right hit for the right animation or detailed transition gets so much emotional resonance from stakeholders that you immediately buy or get, receive a level of trust and understanding, which allows for some of the deeper work around you know, whatever product or, or service is being created. Yeah. Details matter. There's a, there's a famous Eames quote, actually. Called, uh, and I think it's something like, you know, the details are not the details, they are the product. Yep. Um, where it's very easy to kind of dismiss, I think, oh, that's just the kind of detail. But as you know, any, well, I, I think right now, because we're, as we're talking, we're right in the middle of the sort of coronavirus uh, um, crisis. And, you know, things around the way you talk about stuff, um, things around um, small touch points around. So I have a lot of American friends who are, are applying for kind of financial help. And, you know, the details of that process are just mm -hmm. kind of making it all fall apart. And so they have kind of massive social consequences. Right? Well, even in this conversation, it's hard for me to talk about zooming to the different levels without having another zoom come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that one too. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's quite a good example of, of zoom about, of, of the, the app zoom of, what I can only perceive from the outside, and obviously you only ever see the outside, of conversations that maybe should have happened that didn't happen very early on. And of course, once you suddenly hit a kind of growth spurt, the question is, well, you know, if you don't have that conversation early, when do you have it, right? 
Um, or you have it when it's the absolute right time. Well, or <laughs> Which you have it in a crisis, many people right? Is now, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, Andy, to your to your earlier question, I think I answered it with this kind of perspective and different levels in meta view mm. is the practiced answer. No, oh, okay, okay. Well, that's still quite deep, though. So, what's the deeper yeah. answer then? Well, I think the deeper answer is to do with uh, with the transition that I made last year mm. for for a second act, a different career, and you know, over time, as I started doing more and more projects. I started wondering what was the what was the meaning behind it, and for me, one of my curses and blessings is that I have worked both on enterprise apps and consumer apps, and I've done a、mm. large variety of work on both iterative, large scale redesigns, reworks.、Um, for example, I worked on that for for the Facebook ad system, yeah, and then a lot of net new blue sky zero to one concept work, and I'm completely. Drawn passionately in love with the latter, right? And meaning for me was harder to find in that because just with the nature of anything new and different, there's going to be a ton of failures. Yeah, it's going to be a ton of you know. Let's try this for a little while. Oh, it's not getting enough traction. All right, let's let's change. Let's do something different. Um, and what I started to notice over the last probably five years of my design career was that. The things that stood in mind to me was not the amazingness of a product launch or the satisfaction of seeing just the impact of a product to a person when they're when they get to use it for the first time, like when it shifts their lives, when it you know enables to have new forms of livelihood. Because、uh, I worked on video creator tools for a while, video creator、mm. platforms to enable creators to make a business、um, by. Publishing what they love and、yeah. shooting video of it on Facebook—that was wonderful. But ultimately, the thing that really drove me and that I remembered day over day, week over week, was was the people, the designers, the product managers, the engineers, the the salespeople, the marketing people, the leadership—just those tiny little interactions, relationships, just. Memories, and and what out of that triggered you? Because there's a kind of restlessness in the thing that you just said about kind of always going from sort of zero、Absolutely. to one and this new thing. I don't think quite work. Let's kill it. Let's do the next thing.、Um, and I'm often quite jealous sometimes of people who say, "Well, you know, I've I've been doing this thing." So I,、uh, the jeweler who made my wedding ring, for example, and she's she does new things every time. But they're extensions of her existing craft. I think it's a real problem in the kind of digital world, right? Because our tools change so quickly, and it's like all that craft skill you've built up, and obviously the experience remains, but a lot of the craft skills. And suddenly there's a new program out, and you're like, oh, oh now I have to kind of th- not sort of throw half of that out and learn this whole new thing again. There's a kind of restlessness in that.、Um, what, what about that and the the kind of people stuff you were seeing made you? What triggered that shift for you to go, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this change? I think that there's a desire to have kind of a oh one thing happened and then this led X led to Y, and I think the the honest truth is it was something that was gathering and building over time. Yeah, and I'd spent ten years in design agencies, so fun, you know, really fed my restlessness. Right, three、yeah. months coming up with. 
the future of connected TVs, the next vision of the connected home for, you know, the world's largest companies. And yet, I think I worked on, what, 70-some projects in one company over five years, and three, three made it out to ship. Right. And so that was one first inflection point where it was like, this has been amazing. I've gotten the joy of thinking and creating and variety and flexibility of product projects, yet it's less meaningful because I want to see it through. Kind of yeah. this first push-pull between the restlessness and the really seeing something through for long-term impact. So that was one first inflection point. Um, and I think the second was going to startups where uh, I was at a um, enterprise big data startup for two years where it was amazing to go from just the kernel of an idea to MVP, V1, V2 of the product mm. and just see how drastically it, it had to change. Um, and it being just the interface as well as ways, ways of monetization, ways of you know, having it as on-prem versus on the cloud, just different things yeah, like yeah. that. And I felt like that hooked me to be like, that was the variety. To, to see the variety through. through all the different yeah. phases with different ways of people interacting with it. Um, so that was a second inflection point. Um, and then the last was probably just a, a combination where I knew it was time to leave Facebook, but I still felt that I was going to stay in design and find another job in design. Yeah. Um, and as a lark on the side, because I had been, I had been coaching on the side at Facebook for about uh, maybe three, three and a half years. And this is in addition to my team, but just yeah. coaching other people and running leadership workshops. I just thought I would uh, dive in and do a series of uh, coaching training. So I would be a better listener. So I'd be a better leader. So I would, you know, just get better at this craft of design yeah, yeah. that I'm doing, this craft of leadership. And then I got so hooked, just the sense of flow and energy and connectedness and, and passion through doing this. And just, you know, in maybe my third three-day workshop was the big, a little bit reluctant, but also, you know, very excited. Wow, this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is it. And was it reluctant because you knew you were having to kind of give up something else if you were going to go wholeheartedly into this? Or what was the reluctance? I think it's reluctant because I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I've <laughs> learned that when something draws me, there's, for me, there's always an initial reluctance. Like that's how I've learned to follow my I've learned to follow my reluctance and frustration and cautiously being intrigued and being drawn deeper and deeper. So the reluctance is a very personal, familiar feeling right. of a, oh man, it's happening. All right. Wasn't sure I was ready for this. Wasn't sure I wanted this, but wow, this is right. Oh my gosh, everything's going to change. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you probably find this in your coaching too, that how much we fear the thing that we should be doing. Um, you know, and that that pattern seems to come up over and over again. 
um, and people, how people, I don't know what it is like for your coaches, but how people then sort of talk themselves down from it or talk themselves small and kind of, you know, self-sabotage and have the editor inside your head and all of the rest of it. Yeah, it's weird. I think um, it's very, very human. Mm. We love familiarity and routines, you know, in in San Francisco, I think this is week six or seven of shelter in place. And there's a routine and there's a rhythm. I think that there's a time and a place for every individual person in their context to settle into routine and rhythm and comfort. And it, it depends what your what your focus is you know, for that period of your life. And I think at some points in time, there's a shift, there's a trigger, there's a a yearning for for change and something different. And that happens and boom, that's that's the trigger for another shift. And it's completely new and different, you know, similar to having children. Yeah. Many people have a yearning. It's the time. Sometimes it's an external expectation. Sometimes it's an internal. It's the time to have kids. And, you know, when you're in it, especially with young ones under under five, and especially now for right, the parents yeah. who have to play that double shift, it's hard. It's really, really hard, but yet also very, very satisfying and meaningful. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that um, we see the humans see the entire world in terms of um, relationships to other humans. That's why we anthropomorphize stuff all the time. I, I believe our kind of um, relationships to companies and services and stuff are like that too. And that's why we get so annoyed when it feels like a company treats you in a way that you wouldn't treat another person because it feels kind of wrong. And um, that's why I have such a sort of, I'm so irritated often by sort of HR policies and stuff, which take the, weirdly, given the name, take the human out of kind of the those relationships often. But as you were talking about that kind of um, startup, you know, and, and doing all these different things and then wanting to kind of, it really sounded like um, I've had lots of kind of relationships and flings and it's all been very exciting, but now I quite like to kind of settle down and, and have the long-term relationship and then, you know, maybe see the, with the, you know, and have children and settle in it. And th there's a different kind of, there's a different kind of change that settles in, which is instead of constantly changing and having something new and the excitement coming from that, the the excitement comes from watching the same thing evolve and change and experiencing those changes, which is true of relationships too. But it was kind of struck me as you were kind of talking about it and then you went on to the kids thing. And uh, I think that's part of maybe the, it's part of growing older, I think, but I think that's also part of the, I, I am, would suggest that's part of that journey into kind of design leadership to bring it back to that, which is I um I don't need the new thing all the time that I'm making. Actually, what uh, you start to take a kind of longer view of things. Um, has that been your experience, or is it? Is do you no, interpret that differently? It's the longer view of things. I remember yeah. uh, I was chatting with um, one of uh, one of the design leaders at Facebook, and he and I were having this conversation because I was working on some of this new, really mm. hard work which is how to make video very meaningful and inspire a sense of connectedness for uh, for Facebook watchers and not just be yeah. passive popcorn light entertainment. Yeah. And we were having this conversation and I was really frustrated because we tried a bunch of different things and, and, and he asked me, well, how long do you think this is going to take? 
And I just was six months. And he laughed and laughed. <laughs> what? Because we're changing or trying to just have people's behaviors and perceptions of this giant brand be changed. That's not a six-month endeavor. Right. Like, I believe it, it, I believe it can happen, but I don't know what amount of time it will take and if we have the patience to keep doing it over the time. And I See, don't I thought know you were going to say a, the opposite. I don't know if it's a two-year, three-year, five-year. Well, it's a hard problem. You know, the harder yeah. the problems, perhaps the more meaningful they are yeah, and the longer yeah, they'll take. I mean, you'll get lots of quick little wins, right? And get data mm. around quick little wins and little experiments for one segment of person. But how do you do it whole scale, wholesale at scale? That mm. for me is is the long view, you know? It's the yeah. long view similar to, as you were saying, just leadership culture, people, takes time to adapt. I, I thought you were going to say he was laughing because six months is like kind of six years in Facebook, kind of in Facebook years, you know, the, in, in Facebook time. Because I sort of imagined that, um, you know, the response would be, no, it needs to be much quicker than that and so, and so on and so forth. Oh, so he was a wise man. He yeah. is a wise man. And, you know, in six months, yeah, we'll launch four new products. Yeah. Right. Launching is easy. <laughs> um do you think it's but so Wits was talking about age quite a lot here do you think it's possible um to be a young design leader absolutely i mean look at just the energy coming from i'd say even beyond design so mm. many young leaders and entrepreneurs and co-founders yeah i think there's a i think there's different ways to lead yeah tell me about this and maybe the two that I bifurcate into is like maybe, hmm, I haven't thought of this super deeply, so we'll play with it here along the way. But uh, there's a leadership in depth of technical knowledge and expertise, mm. you know, whether it's I am the most brilliant engineer, anything that I or we dream up, I can code and make into existence in, yeah. you know, a couple days. There is very much just a, a leadership and persuasion of a, well, I'll build it. I'll make it. And if the thing is that I made is intriguing enough, that gets others on board and drawn to whether it's the thing I made, the fact that I have the competency to make it that quickly. Mm. Now, there's a there's one model of leadership there, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and another, my cat is now fascinated by this microphone. Yeah, but, that's what I can see. Um, <laughs> another. We're going to get some purring in the mic in a minute. Oh, she is a loud purr, so she might know she's making her way to my lap. That's the problem. Um, and I think the difference is there is a almost a single kind of command and control type of leader, which is mm. that that type of leader that I talked about, could also be the brilliant creative director, yeah. you know, who through her vision and strength and, you know, beauty and craft will show that this is the right way. And in a crit, everyone looks at that and that's absolutely the right thing. And that can come from the creative director. It can come from 
the guy who just graduated from college and has like the latest, newest, useful ideas, but he's the creative leader in the room by virtue of his work. It's interesting, I think, in those two, I mean, if I think sort of archetypically, it's almost the, the sort of difference between a warrior and a, and a queen, let's say. That, that, and the warrior is kind of showing through their craft, you know, I, um, what their, it, their, that leadership. Um, and in the example of the creative director, you said there's obviously craft embedded in that, but actually in the way they talk about it and the narrative and the, the storytelling, the ability to, um, you know, to really kind of inspire people through a story and, uh, um, explaining the vision of a, um, of the story of a vision. Um, is a is a different kind of set of leadership skills. Some people seem to be, uh, if not born with that, they certainly um, seem to grow up with that. It comes more naturally to them than others. When you're coaching, because I think this is a thing that comes up quite a lot um, in coaching, which is, you know, I, I feel like I need to have more presence. I don't have the kind of a skill to kind of communicate because um, a lot of that at, at that level is – is less a lot of the difficulty is less around kind of this is a difficult design problem than this is I, I need to convince enough people and stakeholders to to sort of come along the journey with me, Absolutely. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of that kind of self sabotage and a lot of that kind of feeling of I I I don't have this yet is around building up that skill. How do you go about, or is that a thing that you recognise, and how do you go about coaching people um, to get there? Yeah, super familiar. I think we. Every leader goes through it yeah. you know, from the imposter syndrome. Who am I to be here? Look at all these people all around me and to the, to the feeling that, wow, look at all these different types of leadership presence, this executive mm. presence from, you know, different examples from, you know, the quintessential, this is how Steve Jobs led to, you know, this is how someone like Sundar Pichai leads or this is how someone like Marissa Meyer leads and I'm not like that. I don't look like them. I don't I don't have that confidence, that wisdom, those years, whatever mm. it is. Super, super familiar. Like we all, it's very human. We all go through it. And I work with a lot of uh I work with emerge some emerging leaders to really identify their leadership voice because What's gotten them here isn't necessarily going to get them there. Mm, yeah. You, know, you may be the best highly crafted designer, and that's why you're going to get promoted to manager, yeah. but entirely different set of skills. And what I do with uh, a lot of these people that I coach is really go back to, I talked about this earlier, go back to the why. Why is it that you do the work you do? What parts of the work energize you? And I use the word energize because you can have positive or negative energy, but I'm looking for the amplitude and magnification mm. of energy. But what, what stuff energizes you so you're in this complete state of flow, perhaps inherently like immensely frustrated because you're trying to solve this problem or fascinated by it, you know, and we're just in this, in this state of joyous or frustrated flow. And then look for what are you good at? What are your natural strengths and what are your values? Mm. What really matters to you and has mattered to you since childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, just what has seemed to be these themes 
What are the values you have? And what are the aspirational values that you want? When you look at certain, some of these leaders, not just them as like this end-to-end just person, but what is it about their leadership that you would aspire more for? And kind of looking at all this as the basis for, this is, this is you. This is you as a leader. This is a, a draft, a foundation of you as a leader. And how do we work to run lots of experiments to be like, all right, you want more, you want more bold confidence. Like if that is, if boldness is one of your values, let's try running a number of different experiments for acting more boldly. How does that feel? Does that feel like uncomfortable, but good? Or does that feel entirely not you? That just gives you more data, more indications that you want more of that and that naturally fits you. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I have this thing that I, I kind of think leadership has been a bit sort of fetishized, and, and particularly in a kind of white male, you know, and I'm white, middle-class, middle-aged male way of, you know, here's the, in that sort of HBR way of kind of, uh, you know, here's the seven-step yep. framework to kind of leadership qualities or whatever. And I've kind of seen people um, kind of execute that stuff. I mean, it really feels like... Um, you know when someone does active listening, but they do it in a way that you kind of know they're doing active listening and somehow you kind of feel like now you're not listening because actively because you're thinking about active listening and there's this kind yep. of weird thing that, that um, you know, I, I, there's this kind of whole idea of kind of leadership has these qualities and it's been like studied to pieces. And if you could only just kind of then reverse engineer that then and just do those things, then then it will kind of work for you. But, you know, talking, just listening to you there, you know, and we talk about going right back to childhood, which is so much where a lot of that stuff kind of, well, a lot of the kind of blockers um, come. There's a- Saboteurs rise yeah, from I mean, there's a great, that patterns um, that worked for you in childhood. Right, yeah. Um, uh, Mark Shaler, who's- um, if, got this great book called do present um and i'm hopefully have him on the show soon he has this great question that he asked people in his workshop about presenting which is who stole your voice and when i kind of read it i thought oh i can just see how that you know cuts to the heart of things because obviously it you know people then come to a moment of like they know exactly there's not many people i imagine who say oh i don't really know i reckon most people can really kind of pinpoint it um and you know, it's interesting when you're talking about people aspiring, you know, to people like Steve Jobs and so forth. And I was really pleased the other day when someone said to me, oh, Michelle Obama. I thought, oh, great. Thank God it's not, you know, Steve Jobs or another. I know. I heard myself say it and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I said Steve Jobs. I'd like well, the I mean, market, you know, do, not say, the, do not talk about Apple. Do not talk about Steve Jobs. <laughs> but, you know, there's a person with kind of, you know, huge charisma, huge talent, um, huge sort of attitude and, you know, lots of – that doesn't come without its shadow side either, right, as, as well, the millions of kind of things written about him and stuff show. But what's interesting about it is, you know, I can't be Steve Jobs and nor can you. You can't be Michelle Obama. You can only be Tutti and I can only be Andy. But to try and kind of find that that's that sort of tuning tuning fork or that kind of radar that you're talking about, which is try a little bit of and I I, I mean I talk about it with as experiments with because I think that lands really well with designers and delight design leadership. Cause I think designers my found at least uh, have a bit of an allergic reaction to that kind of HBR type of kind of executive leadership kind of structural stuff. Um, I think they much more respond to this idea of what well, is an experiment. It's just like a, you know, designing something and you iterate on it and you get feedback, you know, you're kind of prototyping your leadership as it were, as you go. 
um, to find, but it's a kind of tuning thing. The validation is, is also that you're your own sort of user in that respect of kind of tuning into, well, that, you know, you sometimes speak to people and they come alive and they're talking about a certain thing and you can just kind of see it. Um, and then sometimes you can kind of see them sort of shrink back again. Um, and I, I think it's such a lovely way of thinking about that that journey. Have you got a, a favorite um, experiment on that front or is it very personal, per, per, you know, depending on who you're coaching? It's very personal. And yeah. I have to come back and say that I love frameworks and processes. So I gobble up all of the ones yeah, from yeah. HBR and and grief theory and change management theory. Yeah. And I'm, I've always been a systems designer. So, <laughs> and what I love is providing the context of experiments within a framework. Cause that's, that's what a framework is. It's mm, a, mm. it's a way of modeling and organizing the chaos of the world and a new concept into um, a, a framework that's more easily digestible for others. So I love putting the context of the experiment into a framework and the ones I tend to push people more to are the ones that are less familiar to them. So I, I primarily work with technologists, yeah. co-founders, tech CEOs, engineers, product and, and designers. And I find all of uh, us in this world are very driven. We're problem solvers. We build things, we get things done very efficiently, very well. We do roadmaps, we do all of this. I don't think many of the people I coach need help with that. They're high performers. They know how to do yeah. this. So the experiments I push towards are more of the unfamiliar, which is some of the stuff that can seem more woo-woo, except that it's really firmly grounded in, yeah. in neuroscience. Yeah which is when you're walking into a meeting, how do you wanna be? What's your intention for how you wanna show up in that meeting? You know, that's a, that's a frequent experiment that I've asked people to do. You know, and if someone goes in and be like, well, the, first, the, the thing that I'm gonna think about most is the relationship. I wanna be relational. Or it's gonna be very different from someone walking to a meeting and who's maybe a little bit nervous because they're presenting their designs for the first time and their intentionality is confident. Or someone walking into a complicated situation and having an intentionality be, be curious. So the experiment that I ask people to run tends to be more on the emotional, the awareness of their body's side. Yeah. And then I ask them, what was the impact of that? How did that affect the outcome of, of the meeting. Um, and you know, if I was, uh, if I was coaching maybe yoga teachers, the experiment would be more towards the, the other try doing this and see what happens. It, yeah. It's more just about disrupting, changing yeah. it up because people get into their patterns. It's interesting. I mean, I, when I said the thing about frameworks, I mean, I'm similar in that I I hoover up stuff, right? I really do kind of, um, and, and, you know, part of the thing for me, and we were talking right at the beginning about that kind of zooming in and out and stuff. I think um, people who have those kinds of minds um, tend to do a lot of, well, that thing over there is a bit like this thing over here and that thing over there is a bit, and, and you look at the kind of similarities between the two and, and, and that's where some of the kind of interesting thinking comes from. 
I, listening to you talking about that and is those frameworks and those kind of structural things is what you're doing is is bringing them back to be really human. And I think what can sometimes happen with those is uh, they become sort of painting my numbers and I'm I'm doing and I've seen people do that. I'm, I'm doing and I'm saying all the things that this said in the book, but it's not really kind of working for me. And I once was in a session, it was a kind of group session and this person was... Um, you know, lovely guy. He was sort of worried about his his executive presence, which is a phrase I don't like very much. But you know, he was worried about his kind of ability to kind of hold a room, basically. Mm -hmm. And we went through a whole lot of stuff, and it ended up with him saying, "So, are you saying I can be myself?" And everyone was like, "Yes, absolutely." Um, but he'd felt like he had to be kind of playing a role, and therefore, because it was inauthentic, and um, you know, whether people know it or not, they sense it, right? he didn't have that kind of presence. And as soon as he actually kind of, and it, it's actually quite hard to be yourself because obviously you need to find out what yourself is in the first place. But that really kind of set him on a completely different trajectory. And he really had exactly that experience of like, oh, you know, when we checked in a couple of weeks later, well, I, I did this, I was this, this way in a meeting and, you know, I sold the project or whatever it was, you know, he, he just had kind of found himself. It was very nice to see. If I circle back to a question you asked earlier, which is, is it possible to be a more youthful leader? Yeah. What resonates with the story you just told is, depends how well you know yourself. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of the journey for, for many of us who are not natural, youthful leaders, it's throughout the years you try on different personas, different identities, and you see how well it works for you. And some people may early on try on a impactful executive presence that's not yeah. them, but yeah. it works for them so well, they just keep doing it. And for other people, it doesn't. And you know, if you ask someone every five years of their professional career, what's your executive presence? I'm really most interested in the people who have, have changed, who have found like different ways of expressing it for what's worked externally for the external validation, yeah. you have great executive presence. You can really hold a room versus what feels right on the inside. Yeah. I think there's a, um, you know, I think there's a thing there where you can fake it until you make it a bit. So that thing where, you Absolutely. know, I think that is quite a sort of important thing. And that's actually one of the ways I think of getting yourself through the dip. Um, and I think what happens a bit later on is, that you realize that everyone's faking it and that's okay. And you become sort of more comfortable with it. And I feel mm -hmm. like it's easier. So I'm, I'm saying this, I'm 48 now. I'm, I'm nearly 49. I think it's easier as you get older. I don't think it's impossible to do this use. And I really don't want to kind of say to anyone listening to this, hey, you, know, you can't be a kind of design leader until you're, you know, old and gray. Because I have also seen kind so of youthful leaders. Down. Yeah, I'm 49. So you can, you know, you can, I've definitely seen um, youthful leaders um, or young people kind of leading. I think what happens, uh, it's, I would say, so I'm going to suggest it's easier when you're older. Because I think one of the things that happens as you get older is you have less need to kind of prove yourself. Yeah, right. and, and and with that comes a kind of relaxedness of, well, I'm going to go into this meeting and I'm going to just say what I think and how I feel about this. I don't really care if they kind of think I'm wonderful or, or not or, you know, have presence yeah. or not. I mean, here is the thing, Andy, which is 
maybe a little bit meta, you know, you and I are both grizzled old leaders in our 40s. <laughs> and we're talking about this. And of yeah. course, we're going to agree, right? <laughs> and imagine like a podcast with a 20-year-old designer who's leading a team with his his guests yeah, or her guests. I, I bet. I bet the conversation is equally intriguing and and likely with a different with a with a different flavor to it. Where the old Around dinosaurs the energy. don't get it, right? Yeah, and who are these old people who think that you know <laughs> you need age to be able to lead properly? And it's just interesting shifts in perspective. Yeah. I think there's an interesting there's a there's a radio program that's very famous in the UK called um, Desert Island Discs, and the whole sort of conceit of it is you know how, what records would you choose to if you were going to a desert island, mm. and um, and they use it to kind of it, it's a great interview technique because they use it to people go oh well I, I chose this song because it's my my mum and dad my dad used to sing it to my mum in the kitchen and then it's like oh really so tell me about your parents and. Um, then uh, it sort of leads to this kind of whole deep conversation. But one of the things about it is that's really great is you hear actors in particular, or sort of celebrities who are, uh, have become famous when they're older compared to people who become, and it, or the stories of people who became famous when they're young and kind of what they went through. It's very, very different. And um, I take a lot of solace in that. So listen, look, we're coming up to time. Um, I ask all of the guests what one thing... Um, it has an outsized effect on the world in, in that kind of zooming in and out thing. Either it could be something that's um, unappreciated and overlooked, or it's something that's uh, desperately needs to be rethought um, that would have an outsized impact on the world. Andy, this has been stressing me out the whole <laughs> podcast. What is my brilliant answer to this? Um, two things, because I am not okay. good at following directions. You can do two things. One for for designers, you are amazing at the design process, at the divergence and convergence of making your product or service the best thing possible. Consider applying this design process to you, to your life, to your leadership, understanding what design principles or values govern your life. Choose nice. your life, your leadership, with with intentionality and apply those principles to design your own leadership. That's a that's a little bit of a soapbox that I talk about a lot. And then the other is as as many of us are getting in touch with and realizing through forced enforced confinement right now, relationships really really matter. Yeah. And we're we're going to be emerging and entering a a, a new normal at some point. What parts of relationships and connections to different people ha do you want to redesign? What matters? Who matters the most? What matters about that relationship? What do you want to be true and hold on to over time? Those I'll are, leave you with those two. Th two those things are big to things. <laughs> those aren't small things. Those are big things, but they're very good things. Where can people, very quickly, where can people find you on, online? Where do, where do people go to find you? Yeah, my, my website is 2dtagerly.com and I, I publish on Medium every week. Okay, cool. Come and find on, me. Come chat. Okay. I love talking we'll, uh, to people. We'll put Come links, chat. links everywhere. Are you on Twitter too? I am. Or is that heresy to uh, ex-Facebook no. persons? Okay. All right. I'm on all the things, but there's the things that I'm on because I should be on them and there's the things that I'm on because I love. So. Okay. I'll, I'll, we'll put all the links up in the show notes. 
Thank you so much. It's been a, a lovely conversation. It's been also lovely to hear your cat purring uh, in the background. It's been quite comfortable. Oh, I wasn't quite sure that came through. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much for being my guest on Power of Ten. Thanks, Andy. It was so fun. Thanks for listening to Power of Ten. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, go to thisishcd.com, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook, Bringing Design Closer and Getting Started in Design with Jerry Scallion, and Talking Shop with Jerry, myself, and some of the other hosts. You'll also find the transcripts and links to this show, and you can sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel and connect with other designers around the world. My name's Andy Polane. You can find me at polane.com or apolane on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>